This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 FM or through WAGP.net, for the next hour we will be taking people's questions. Maybe it's a particular issue from Scripture that you're looking for direction or application on uh, or an issue or challenge you're facing in your life and you'd like biblical counsel. If we can be of help, by God's grace, we will do what he will give us to say. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the local South Carolina 843 exchange is simply 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio at wagp.net. And we get a variety of questions. So I will tell you, we always give priority to live callers so if you want to assure that your question is answered possibly today, then call us at 843-525-1859. And if you don't want to go on the air and you simply want to dictate your question, we're happy to receive it in that fashion as well. Well, Walter, it's good to be back here in the saddle today, and um, let's go ahead and we'll get started. All right, Pastor Carl, good morning. Our first question comes in as anonymous out of North Carolina. They write, how do we rightly apply, apply the promises made by Israel by the Old Testament prophets such as Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, in this, the church age? Well, those are great, great questions and really two verses that are often raised and brought up as an issue. Maybe I should start by just sharing some overarching principles when you especially study the Old Testament, and you're looking for direction, though some of these apply to the New Testament as well. First, you always want to look at the context. Who is the promise made to? Who is the original audience? What's the historical setting? What's the cultural, textual context? Because if you ignore that, you might be adopting a principle or a promise that really has no application for you today. And there's a tendency sometimes to do this especially if we like a verse and we want it to apply directly to our life. Uh, Charismatics often take the verse in Exodus, the Lord will fight for you, you only need to be still. In fact, I heard a major evangelical speaker who just actually stepped down out of the pulpit of his church, and uh, he would often quote that verse. Well, when you go back and you look at it in the context, Exodus 14, 14, He's speaking to, uh, through Moses to the people of Israel about um, Pharaoh, who's about to clobber them, it appears. They're scared spitless, and God says, just relax. Just be still. Don't say anything. I'm going to take care of this situation. And indeed, he drowns the whole army in the Red Sea. But if you keep reading And again, people fail to look at the context. Just a few chapters later, Israel is not commanded to sit still, but to fight. Of course, our fight, we don't trust in chariots or in horses, 
but in the name of the Lord our God. Our, our, our trust is always to be in him and not in our own strength. In fact, we just kind of hit on this on Sunday with King David, who numbered the troops, and in so doing, he was putting his confidence in the arm of flesh. So first, you want to look at, as an overarching principle, what's the context, to whom is it is given? And then second, sometimes you want to ask, is this a, a promise that is unconditional or conditional in nature? Um, and again, this applies to New Testament promises as well. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's a conditional promise. Um, if any of you lacks wisdom, you know, you ask of God, but there's a condition. You can't be double-minded. You can't have, you know, I just want to hear what you want to tell me, Lord. We have to come to him uh, totally broken and willing to hear his answer. And then sometimes, again, there's promises that are, you know, very, very pointed, like I think of Noah and the great flood, and God promised that he would never, uh, that, well, first of all, he promised that he would not destroy Noah and his family. Uh, Now, you can't, like, spiritualize it, and there have been teachers in the course of church history that have approached the scripture in an allegorical way, and they say, oh, yeah, God said he wouldn't you know, destroy Noah and his family. He'd take them through the big flood, and then they'll go on and say, well, God wants to take you through the floods of life, and it has absolutely nothing to do with what the text is saying. Now, there is a promise we can claim from Genesis 9.15, every time you see a rainbow, and God promised not that he would never have a flood, a local flood, they happen all the time, but that he would never destroy the whole world again with a worldwide flood. And so the flood, as some liberal scholars and some sloppy evangelicals have tried to argue with some local flood, no, it was worldwide in nature, which again is an explanation for why the fossil record is the way that it is and why the earth is not 100 billion years old or whatever people want to put on it, but actually around 6,000 years old. Now, with that said, there are promises all the time that are taken out of context, probably one of the most popular one, and it seemed to be like a favorite verse during the 1980s and the 1990s in the political realm, but it's in 2 Chronicles 7.14. I've turned there, and it says this, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so you'll hear some preacher, some speaker say, God is saying my people, meaning today they would say born-again Christians, if we get right, then God promises to heal our land. No, he does not. That is taking a verse out of context. God promised to deliver the nation of Israel from her wicked ways if she would turn from her sin. It's a very similar promise. Let me turn over to First Kings for just a second, Solomon is dedicating the temple, and um, we read here in First Kings 8, let me um, start in verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, very similar to what we just read in Second Chronicles, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to your fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants 
What is he doing? Solomon is reciting back basically the Mosaic Covenant that you find in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And again, it's a conditional promise, and it's a specific promise. It's given to the nation of Israel. My people refer to the Jewish people, and it refers to the entire nation, not just the believers who are within the nation. So the church is not Israel, and Israel is uh, not the church, and the church is certainly not a nation. In fact, there's coming a point, you know, again, people quote this, they see the lawlessness and the violence and everything, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. It doesn't mean that judgment shouldn't begin with the household of faith, but there's coming a time when God's not going to reverse the situation. In fact, he promises it will get progressively worse at the end of the age. And I actually think that we've reached that point. We are at the end of the age in light of not just the fact that Israel is back in the land, which is kind of the super prophecy that signals you that you're at the end of time, but there's a convergence of all kinds of prophetic issues that are happening all at once. Uh, But let me look at specifically the two verses that you highlight. First, Isaiah 41. In verse 13, for I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, it's all caps, your God, Elohim, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Now, that's a promise that God made to the people of Israel, and it's certainly repeated in places like Psalm 46 that we often quote. I'll read it sometimes during a time, especially of national disaster, to bring comfort to the people of God. But that's a promise that you could extend because God over and over and over and over again, in fact, somebody said, I've never counted it, that there's 365 times when God says, do not fear, one for every day of the year. Uh, But the principle is repeated in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Matthew 10, Matthew 12, Hebrews 13, he'll never leave us nor forsake us, which signals you that there is application for today, direct application. The second verse that you highlight here is from the book of Jeremiah. Let me read it. Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And so the question is, who is God referring to? And is this something that I can claim outright? Well, um, let me keep reading. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. So it has an immediate context because it says here, because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, and these were false prophets saying, oh, there's no problem. This is not going to last for 70 years. And they blew off the warning that God gave through Jeremiah. Remember, this is written. You always want to ask at what time in human history is this particular prophet giving ministry to? And he is giving, he's ministering to a people before the great Babylonian uh, exile, before Nebuchadnezzar comes down and crushes the people and carries them away for 70 years. And God is just giving them a sense of hope in the midst of despair. You're going to be there for 70 years in spite of all the false prophets in, in the nation there who say, I represent Yahweh. And these are Jewish men who are falsely prophesying. And he's 
assuring them, no, these guys are wrong. Build houses, uh, plant vineyards, because you're going to be here for decades to come. And they ignored that, some of the people. But nonetheless, God, in the midst of his discipline, gives them a sense of hope. And he says, look, a day is coming when I'm going to restore you. That's the near view. And certainly the far view will certainly be fulfilled across the world when God gathers the Jewish people as he's doing from across the world today. And so, again, it's a specific promise. Let me just turn back to Deuteronomy. And and Jeremiah is really, in one sense, echoing what God said to Moses in the Mosaic Covenant. It says, uh, so it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. So Moses is looking down the tunnels of time, really to the end of the age, and the age in which we live in, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And so again, it's a, it's a principle that's given specifically to Israel. So, you know, graduation students often quote this and you know, and, and I, I, I don't say it at graduation, you know, you're really using that verse out of context for the simple reason that the principle is echoed elsewhere in the New Testament. Now, contextually, the future and the hope that God has for them is that he would restore them back to the land of Israel. But there's a broader principle in passages like Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are literally the called according to God's purpose. And so God has a way of orchestrating the circumstances in our life to give us a future and a hope. And Jesus, for that reason, told us to keep praying, ask, and it will be given to you, seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. That's like seeking me with all your heart. And so it's important that when we look at a principle, we want to look at the context, the audience, that's very critical. But understand we're not saying that Old Testament passages have zero application for us today. Even though there may be a specific focus and promise given to a particular people, Paul reminds us that all Scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired, and it is profitable. Um, I was talking to someone recently about the cleansing laws and the uh, dietary laws of the Old Testament. You know, what application has it for us today? It has great application. Um, one, God declared all meats clean, so we don't fo- follow the dietary laws, but there's still a principle there, and it's a principle of separation, that God always has a separated people that are not to live like the world. Paul says this in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? Through the renewing of your mind. So there must be some way to apply every verse of Scripture. Some of the verses just teach us about a principle concerning what we are to be like as a people, or some of these verses teach us a principle of what God is like. And God never changes. I, the Lord God, do not change. The immutability of God is the prophet Malachi underscores. That's a great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl on the Bible line this morning. Let's go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Stephanie from Portland, Oregon. Good morning, Stephanie. You're live with Pastor Carl. 
Hi, thank you so much for helping us. So appreciate it. Um, my question is related to the kind of the ex- epidemic we're seeing now of young so-called Christian women who are moving in with their boyfriends before getting married. They say they're married in their hearts, so it's okay. Um, we tell them all the reasons from the Bible why this is a problem and that God cares very much about this issue, but they know better and they dismiss our warnings. So my question is specifically, what should be our response to the wedding itself, along with all of the preparations, showers, parties, etc., when these young women are unrepentant in this, um, but we've known them their whole lives and they expect, you know, auntie so-and-so to come and help with this and that, you know, and uh, how should we respond? That's a fantastic question. So I think first, if you broaden the application and the question a little bit, can a believer attend an unbeliever's wedding and can a believer help out with an unbeliever's wedding? Because what you're really looking at here are two people who may say they are Christians, but they are unregenerate. And so one, you deal with it in integrity and in honesty. And you'd say to, we'll call her Susie and Joe, Susie and Joe, I know you claim to be Christians, but the Bible would give you very little assurance that you've ever been born again. And let me explain why. And I say this not because I hate you, but because I love you. And so I might turn to a passage like Ephesians 5, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper amongst saints or holy ones. He's describing people who have been saved, born again. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty. Here's why he's given us motivation why we are to live a different separated life, because we know this with certainty that no immoral or impure person, which you've just described maybe some of these young women and men, Um, has an inheritance, he'll say, in the kingdom of Christ in God. And then he adds, let no one deceive you with empty words. And I would say, Susie and Joe, the nature of deception is that people who are deceived don't know they're deceived. And so God would say, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, you are not to be partakers with them. So on the one hand, it's possible for a Christian to fall into any kind of sin. And so Paul will say, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, because no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. But if this is a person's direction in life, in focus in life, then he's giving us a balancing truth. On the one hand, these things shouldn't even be named among us. And underscore in your thinking, when I say this, writes Paul, that unbelievers are going to meet God in his eternal wrath because this is their lifestyle. I might turn to a passage like Galatians 5 because, again, the key is not perfection because anyone can fall, but the key, I think, is not perfection but direction. And so Paul says the deeds of the flesh, and here the word flesh, sarks, is referring to the sin nature within are evident. Well, what are they? He says immorality, impurity, sensuality. He goes through this list, and he says, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, 
that those who practice such things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so, Susie, for you and Joe to be living together, you are practicing sexual immorality. It's not like you slipped and fell and then your hearts were broken because you have a regenerated spirit. This is the direction of your life. And God would warn you that such people have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and in Christ. Even passages like 1 Corinthians 6 or Matthew 7, when Jesus in Matthew 7, which I think is in maybe the supreme example that we could highlight, because these are people who unequivocally say that they are born-again Christians. In fact, if we looked at some of the attributes that he attributes to these people, we'd say these are folks with a who have a really powerful spirit-filled ministry. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, in the repeat, the repetition of his name, like Mary, Mary, Martha, Martha, is something a Jewish person would do of someone that they had a close relationship with. And so when someone claims to have a close relationship with the Lord, they say, Lord, Lord, he says, not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Susie and Joe, is it the will of God for you to practice fornication? Well, Hebrews says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Those who defile the marriage bed, that's what you're doing. They are ripe for judgment. And then he goes on to say, many will say to me on that day, again, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? And there are illustrations of all three of these done by unbelievers in Scripture. And so unbelievers can sometimes do a miracle in the name of the Lord, and Satan is happy to accommodate because he's able to then promote their false lifestyle and their false doctrine. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And he quotes here uh, from Psalm uh, 6, depart from me, you who practice. Again, there's the key word. We're talking about direction, lawlessness. So first of all, I would say you need to deal with these young women and young men in honesty and let them know that you do not think that they are born-again believers. And apart from their marriage, you have a greater concern and your greater concern is whether or not they're going to spend an eternity with God. And then, of course, there's very, very practical reasons why God calls people to abstain. God is not trying to uh, keep sex from us. He's trying to save it for us. And so when two people walk down the aisle and they say, I will, all of a sudden one day, their character that they walk down the aisle with does not change when they say, I will. And so if they're promiscuous, even with each other, even exclusively with each other, before they're married, what makes the mate, their new partner that they are now married to, think that they're going to be faithful after they get married? And the sad thing is there's like a serial adultery or serial fornication in our day. And so people get involved in a marriage relationship, and because their character has not fundamentally been changed, especially in a day that's characterized by impurity and lawlessness, which is what God said would characterize the end of the age, we would be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, temptation is rampant. And so people can easily be sucked away. And so the marriage 
Uh, divorce rate has gone in 100 years from approximately 1 in 100 to now 53 out of 100 just reported last month. And I'll fact, in fact address this a little bit um, in the next sermon I'm going to preach in my series on Malachi. So I, I say all that, well, not the next sermon, but a, a little bit down the road here. So I, I say all this to say that you're dealing with lost people. And God wants to protect the marriage relationship. Look, when, when couples come in and they want me to marry them, number one, I won't marry them. I won't perform a marriage, A, if there's two unbelievers. So as an evangelical pastor, I'm not going to perform a wedding for two unbelievers. So I would first ask, who's marrying them? And if this is like their pastor and he knows that they're living in sin— well, if they're living in sin, then they should be under church discipline, and he has no background, backbone. Uh, if this is an evangelical pastor, and these are just two unbelievers who have come to him who want to get married, and he's thinking, well, maybe I can win them to Christ. Well, he should share the gospel with them, but he should never marry two unbelievers because what he is basically doing is setting them up for disaster. I'm not saying that marriage is exclusively a Christian institution. It's not. God has provided it for all people. But neither should a pastor be in the marrying business. And so if he's marrying two people who are outwardly rebelling against God because they refuse to yield to the Lordship of Christ, he's already fostering a potential disaster in the day that he lives in and maybe potential heartache if children come into the relationship and it ends up down the road in a divorce. God is big, he can forgive, he can cleanse and all that, but you don't present problems in the front end. So I wouldn't necessarily say it would be sinful for a person to be engaged in the wedding of two unbelievers who are not performing the marriage. But I would say, because look, it might be a child, it might be a nephew, it might be a niece, you don't entirely want to lose the audience. And, and by the way, to go back to my illustration, when we do premarital counseling, there's a box on there which they have to check that they are willing to refrain from all physical expressions um, during the engagement period. And if they can't check that box, that's fine. I won't marry them. You know, they can find a preacher. They can go to some chapel, pay somebody 100 bucks. They'll be glad to marry them. Why? Because, again— if they've been maybe gone too far, not necessarily all the way, and I'm careful here because we have a lot of young ears that are listening. Nonetheless, I don't want them to think that walking down the aisle changes their character. And so all of a sudden it's a Marine who's deployed for six months. That wife needs to know that because he exercised self-control before he was married, he can exercise it after he's married or vice versa or whatever the circumstances might be. So there's part of you that want to say, I want to win this couple for Christ, but you do it in honesty. And if they kick back against you when you deal with them in honesty, because it would be dishonest. Here's where I would say you couldn't participate. You couldn't participate if you are basically kowtowing to them and you're agreeing with them, they're Christians, they're just not good Christians. That's dishonest, and that's doing them a great disservice. And so we're just asking, you know, for God's blessing on two fornicators. That would be a dishonest kind of approach to it. 
But if you can approach it in love, you speak the truth in love and out of concern, yeah, you give them a wedding gift. Yeah, you may attend the wedding. And there are some weddings you could not attend because they're not even a marriage, obviously. And Scripture gives us those parameters. But that would be my starting point to you, Stephanie from Portland. It's a great question, and it's one that's like covering over the evangelical culture today because the culture is so immoral. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. We're going to stay with the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Sue from Branchville. Good morning, Sue. You are live with Pastor Carl. Go ahead, Sue. you got to turn your radio down so um, you don't get confused. Go ahead. Hi. Um, yes. Go ahead. Since we've moved out of the area, we've been searching for about two years for a church, and we finally found one that teaches the Word. My concern is the pastor, um, according to Scripture, is not qualified to be an elder because he said that— um, he was previously married, and his wife took their children and left them, and they had a messy divorce, and he's now remarried. Right. And so I'm just wondering, you know, how we should handle this. Well, I think you're in the wrong church. Why would you want to sit under a man that you know definitively God says he can't serve as an elder? If God says he can't serve as an elder, and he does, there's only one of two options. Either A, he's in disobedience, which God certainly cannot bless the preaching of any disobedient pastor, whatever the issue might be in his life, even if it's not a marriage issue, or B, he is so sloppy in his handling of the word, which is what he's really saying. If he's trying to defend, well, my wife left me for another man and I've got this and that. No, it must be a one woman man. That's what the text says, the husband of one wife. It's not that God's down on divorced people, not at all, but God's trying to protect marriages from the heartache of a potential divorce. And if you can't model that in the leadership of the local church, then what can you model? And there are certainly people who've abused it. They say, well, this is a prohibition. The husband of one wife, or literally the Greek text says a one-woman man, this is a prohibition against polygamy. Oh, yeah, no, not a prohibition. Yeah, if a guy has three wives, he can't serve as an elder. He wouldn't be considered a believer under New Covenant standards. So that's just stupid. Not to mention it was even against the law in Rome. Some people say, well, um, you know, the husband of one wife means he has to be married and that it excludes single people. Well, that would exclude the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was not only an apostle, he was an elder because all the apostles are elders. That's why Peter can refer to himself as a fellow elder. So that's certainly not in view, not to mention that the chief shepherd, the chief pastor, the chief elder, the Lord Jesus, of course, was single his whole life. Some people say, well, it's a non-flirtatious person. No, because whatever one phrase means, the husband of one wife or one woman man, a one man woman is used a few chapters later in 1 Timothy 5 of a widow who might be considered to be put on the list for specialized care in the church because her husband is dead and she doesn't have grandchildren and the like, and you can't put every widow on the list, so what are the parameters? Well, what one phrase means, the other means, and and nobody debates, debates the latter, so why would we debate the former? So it either tells me, A, he's either in rebellion or he's in ignorance. If he's in rebellion, God can't bless his preaching If he's in ignorance, then he's not able to teach. He's not skilled in sound doctrine. 
and you don't want to sit under that person. So keep searching. Find the best church you can that has the gospel. Now, I know sometimes our standards are so high because maybe we've sat under a healthy church and we say, well, this pastor has the gospel and he's doing everything he knows to be, but I don't get a whole lot out of his sermons. And hey, look, you know, there's a lot of pastors like that and God still raises them up and they're growing and you might encourage them and put some tools in their hands and and things like that, or point him in a direction, scores. The majority of pastors in America have never even been to seminary. And so you're dealing with issues like that. But if he has the gospel and he's doing his best to try to shepherd that flock with integrity, then that might be a church you would want to consider. And if uh, need be, get your vitamin supplements off of pastors on the internet that you know to be sound. Good question. Let's go to the next one. I think Alberto and Savannah. Is that right? Yes, sir, Pastor Carl. We have Alberto from Savannah. Alberto, good morning. You are live with Pastor Carl. Yeah, good morning. Yes, I got a question. How did the Nazian Creed come about teaching that Jesus is the eternal begotten Son? Or all I mean, eternal begotten God. Yeah, because some people say, well, it can't be begotten because that means that means it has a beginning. All right, Jesus Christ is eternal, so how can the Nicene Creed come up with eternal begotten gods? Well, I think your premise is incorrect, that begotten refers to someone that was simply created. And so the word, actually, in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten, uh, his uniquely begotten, his monogene. So in other words, the um, incarnation of Christ when he took on our humanity was unique. It was totally unique. And that the Lord Jesus had no beginning or end. The scripture defined that Messiah's comings would be from eternity past. Micah, the prophet, underscores that. A baby is going to be born, and the baby's name will be called Mighty God. There's a baby who's coming who has got going to be not just human, but who's going to be divine. And well, how is this conception going to take place? A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. El is the Hebrew word for God, the, the Hebrew word Emmanuel or Emmanuel, depending whether you're reading from the Septuagint or the Greek translation, literally means God with us. And so... God is describing a baby whose conception is unique. There's actually only one other person in all Scripture who's called a monogene, who also has a unique conception, and it's Isaac, and it's in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, where he's called uh, the unique begetting of Abraham, and his uniqueness was not obviously on the level that the Lord Jesus' conception, because Jesus had no human father. But it was unique in the sense um, he came, and let me just read, by faith Abraham, I'm reading Hebrews eleven seventeen. when he was tested, offered up Isaac, um, and he who had him received the promises, who offered up his only begotten, his monogene son. And it was said to him, that in Isaac, all you know, the na- all your descendants uh, shall be called. So he's uniquely begotten in that Abraham was beyond the ability to have a child, and uh, Sarah had gone through menopause decades before, 
total impossibility. And so what did God do? He renewed their bodies and gave them the ability to conceive. And that was a unique baby. Now, Jesus is unique, not on the level that, um, of a human birth, but on the fact that God brought together eternal deity with sinless humanity. And he did that through a virgin conception because the uh, sin nature was passed on through the Father. And so um, never miss the fact that the blood that was flowing through the veins of Jesus in Mary's womb was not Mary's blood. Uh, it's always determined by the Father. In fact, paternity suits years ago before DNA and all the sophistication that we have today was done through blood types, and we could eliminate maybe a particular person from being the Father. Well, Jesus had no human father. Uh, the angel Gabriel said to Mary in Nazareth, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and overshadow your womb. And for this reason, he shall be called the Son of God. And so some of the creeds, they weren't inventing some new truth. They were summarizing a biblical stance that had been taught since the days of the apostles because there were issues that either A, denied the humanity of Christ, that he was a real human, or there were false teachers who denied his deity. And there were all kinds of, you know, scenarios that were being presented through false teachings. Some said that he was all God and no man. Some said Jesus said that Jesus was all man and no God. Some said he was half God and half man. No, he was the God man, fully God, fully man, brought together inseparably into one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Nicene Creed is just affirming a biblical truth. It's not making up something that the church didn't believe. So you have, you know, Seventh-day Adventists and others who look at some creeds and say, well, you know, Constantine believed this, and he dogmatized this. And I'm not saying whether Constantine is a believer or not. I tend to doubt it. I hope I'll meet him in heaven, but I tend to doubt it. Um, but nonetheless, um, he affirmed some biblical truths and made Christianity the religion of the empire, sometimes to the detriment of other people, uh, like with Jewish people, Jewish Christians. They had to deny that they were Jewish. You can't deny that you're Jewish any more than you can deny that you're Hispanic, Alberto. Uh, you can't deny that, that your ethnicity doesn't change. And so he did some really weird things, too. Well, people say, well, Constantine, you know, decided that we would worship on the first day of the week. No, he didn't. That was the practice from the early church. All he did is he freed people up to be able to work on the first day of the week. He didn't invent that. And so the creeds, now there were certainly creeds that were not accurate, but what we call the Apostles' Creed, and there's a number of versions the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed and these other creeds are summary documents of what historical Christians have believed since the inception of the church. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from Ophelia out of Savannah, Georgia. Uh, she would like to know that uh, she has been praying for a long time about her family and her finances. She understands about God's timing and God's will, but people are telling her that if she has no faith, God will not answer her. She says she has faith, and she asks, ask, where in the Bible can she find about God and his answering prayers? Well, it's a great question. So there are 
two directions in which I would point you in since I don't have you live on the phone. If I had you in front of me, one, Ophelia, I would want to make sure that you have exercised the first step of faith that makes you a child of God. And so if I were to ask you on a scale of zero to 100, zero, I don't know, and 100, I'm positive how certain you are that you go to heaven. And if you told me less than 100, I would be very concerned that you've not yet exercised true faith in a finished work that can allow you to say that I am 100. And if and if you say you're 100, as 30% of lost people do because you're a good person or some work that you've done or are attempting to do, then I would say you've not yet exercised true faith. So I'm going to assume that you've done that, but if you haven't, then I would want you to go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to the presentation. Jesus said, search the scriptures because they're about me. So it's all one word, searchthescriptures.org, and listen to the presentation. Would you like to know God is your friend? Because it's not acts of faith. Sometimes I'll ask a person why God should let him into heaven. They say, well, I believe God. I have faith. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, our baby was in a jam and it looked like desperate. We we're going to lose the child. And we got on our knees and we prayed and God healed our baby. You see, I have faith. Well, it's good to express faith. And sometimes God, yes, contrary to popular teaching, can answer even the prayers of an unbeliever as he did, for instance, in Acts 10 with Cornelius. But the kind of faith that God is looking for is not trusting him simply for your daily bread needs. It'll keep you safe tonight and pay the bills and keep your family healthy. But he is looking for the kind of faith in an event he already performed, namely the death, burial, and the resurrection. So A, before you can approach God with a sense of confidence in prayer, you want to make sure beyond a question of a doubt you're born again. And if you have any questions, listen to that presentation. Would you like to know God as your friend? And if you still have questions, call me at the church, and I'll be happy to set up an appointment and speak with you. So that's the first thing, because while it is possible for God to answer the prayer of an unbeliever, as he did in Acts 10, but we take verses like Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear, or the Lord has made a separation between you and your God because of your sin. Your iniquity has made a separation between you and your God. Those are verses actually written to save people, so to speak, to the covenant people of Israel in the Old Testament. But when there's unconfessed sin in the heart of the believer, yes, prayer is indeed hindered. Um, but if you are a believer, then you want to understand on what basis do you approach God. And all the promises in prayer in the New Testament are primarily focused to those that are God's children, those who've received Christ. If you want to do a study on this, we offer a course at Community Bible Church. I know it looks like you have a Savannah address, so it may be too far for you, though we have people who come from Savannah every week because they're frustrated with all the hoopla and so many churches down there. Um, but this course is also on the Internet, and you can call Search the Scriptures or call the church, and they'll be happy to send you a 33-page handout on what the Bible says about prayer. And there are some uh, lessons that, uh, videos or audio lessons that accompany that 33-page handout. And you are going to learn what God says about prayer. So it tells me right off that 
Uh, you know, I'm sure your friends maybe mean well, but it almost sounds a little bit moronic what they're telling you. You have no faith and God will not answer your prayer. You know, what do they mean by that? And why would you say that to a person? You know, and if they're lost and you knew them to, to be lost, then they're obviously searching. You'd want to introduce them to Christ. And if you knew them to be saved, you wouldn't say you have no faith and so God's not going to answer you. You'd say, well, Ophelia, here's how God does answer prayer. And here are the conditions and here are some hindrances to prayer. And that's what that handout is going to help you to do. So either call Search the Scriptures or the church at 843 525 a zero zero eight nine or eight four three five two five. You could call the radio station eighteen fifty nine, and we'll get you that handout. We'll send it as an attachment to you, and we'll send the audio files that you can listen to. And I think your question will be answered. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, Pastor Carl. We will go back to the phone lines. I believe we have Anthony Vaughn. Good morning, Anthony. You are live with Pastor Carl. Hey, Anthony, go ahead. You're on the air. Maybe we lost Anthony. Let, let's go to the next one. He dropped out. All right, moving along. Uh, we have a live dictation uh, that came in from Kelly out of Springfield, Georgia. Uh, she would like to know, what is a Reformed pastor or Reformed church, and do their teachings align with the Bible? Well, uh, it depends who you're speaking with and how they're defining the doctrine of Reformed theology, but I would say, generally speaking, a Reformed theologian would definitely affirm certain non-negotiables of the faith, you know, the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the substitutionary uh, death of Christ as an eternal payment for our sin, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the fact that he will literally bodily come again to judge the living, the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible. They would affirm the five solas that are on the stained glass window behind me that I preach. Uh, f- uh, my pulpit says in the front, sola scriptura, on the same stained glass window are the five solas. Sola is the Latin word for alone, sola gratia, sola fide. Solo Deo Gloria, Solo Scriptura, Solo Christos. So we believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And so a Reformed pastor would definitely embrace that. But typically today, when someone calls himself a Reformed pastor, they mean even additional things. They tend to be Calvinistic. They have a certain view of election that would coincide with John Calvin. In fact, I would say it would typically go beyond what Calvin taught because Calvin did not definitively hold to a limited particular atonement. He did not, though most Reformed people do. They say that Jesus didn't die for everyone, just the elect. And they may not come right out and tell you that, but if you listen to them carefully, they'll say, well, Jesus died for those who would repent and believe. In other words, they're putting parameters around who he died for and only for those who would repent and believe. I don't embrace that. I believe Jesus died for all. They also, um, depending on their flavor, you can have a Reformed pastor who would practice infant baptism covenantally, or you could have a Reformed Baptist that would practice post-conversion baptism. But historically, a Reformed pastor would practice infant baptism. 
uh, you could have a Reformed pastor, and this would be a major distinction. And this is, I would say, um, a bedrock belief, is they are amillennial in their view of future doctrines. And they are amillennial, meaning there is no coming reign of Messiah on the earth because they believe that the church has replaced Israel. And so Vadi Bakum just preached a sermon. I, I heard a snippet of it last week and basically denying that Israel has zero significance being back in the land. God has no future for the people of Israel because the church is the new Israel. Now, I love Vadi, and I actually asked him one time to come and speak in my pulpit, but I couldn't afford him at the time. Uh, but nonetheless, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not like saying he's in the ministry for the money, so let me qualify that, but he had a schedule where he was, you came to a church and you paid X thousands of dollars because he was raising money for other works that he was doing, and this is how he did it. Um, but you know, I could have fellowship with him. I would agree with a whole lot that he taught, but do I think his statement that would maybe echo a John Piper who would also call himself a reformed Baptist is true? No, it's, it's wrong. It's a false teaching to say that God is done with the people of Israel and there's no significance. The church has not replaced Israel. God said, as long as the sun and the moon and the stars are up above, if man is able to measure the heavens above or the earth beneath, which he cannot, if these things would ever stop, then I'll stop loving Israel, Jeremiah 31. But God has loved Israel with an eternal love, and he's not done with Israel. And just as he used Israel to bring about the first coming, he's going to use Israel to bring about the second coming of Christ. So do I appreciate um, the reform pastor who ignores that? No, he's helping to put the church to sleep. He is living a moronic lifestyle by some of the things that he is teaching by saying that there's no future for Israel. So when they read the book of Revelation, I mean, I almost, I got, I, I, I'm not saying I literally got ill, but I felt like getting ill when someone sent me a video clip of Vadi, for instance, in the book of Revelation. Look, it's not um, history with the exception of Revelation 19, which is still future when Christ comes back at the second coming. It's still future. God is literally going to do these things. He's literally going to fulfill these promises. And so their approach, especially in the realm of what we would call future things, eschatology is the 50-cent word, is, um, is distorted because they apply a different principle for interpreting the Scripture concerning future things they have to because they've jettisoned Israel. And, they, you know, Calvin, to me, some of the things he said are, are disgusting. Some of the things Martin Luther said are disgusting concerning their anti-Semitic statements. I, I, I don't appreciate some of the things that they, they said. And, um, you know, and, and sometimes as a pastor, you have to deal with these things especially when you're involved in Jewish evangelism. Um, and let me just give you something that Calvin wrote. I'm quoting him. And it was Calvin, of course, this was in French. It's been translated. The translation from French says, a response to questions and objections of a certain Jew. Calvin said, and I quote, the Jews are a rotten and unbending people whose obstinance deserves that they be oppressed without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. I find that disgusting. 
But again, because John Calvin believed that God was done with Israel, he created in Geneva a theocracy. And so when Michael Silveltis was in error concerning his view of the Trinity, he had him executed. He was burned alive at the stake. Look, we're not in some theocracy. That was unique. Here's what Luther said. What then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they are living among us, and we know about their lying and blasphemy and cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curses, and blasphemy. Let me give you my honest advice. First, their synagogues should be set on fire. Whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt so that no one may be able to see a cinder or stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity in order that God may see that we are Christians and that we have not wittingly tolerated or approved of such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his son as his Christians. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. I can't believe this is a, this is a Protestant reformer. He's of the reformed faith. For they sh- perpetu- perpetuate the same... Uh, excuse me, they perpetrate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. For this reason, they ought to be put under one roof or in a stable like gypsies in order that they may realize that they are not masters in our land as they boast, but miserable captives as they complain incessantly before God with bitter wailing. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy is taught. Their rabbis should be forbidden to teach under the threat of death. Their passport should be... It goes on. This is just like disgusting. And so when you're trying to reach Jews and they say, well, yeah, you Christians really love us. Look at the anti-Semitism in the Roman church. Look at the anti-Semitism in these so-called reformed pastors like Luther and Calvin. It's disgusting. And so, look, I, I, you know... Reformed pastors can blow me off and say, well, you know, you've got a distorted view. But let me just say, Jesus said, anyone, anyone who teaches someone to break the least of these, my commandments, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And so I believe, among other things, Reformed pastors are doing that very thing. And I could go on for the next half hour, but I won't. Find another church would be my counsel. Let's go to the next question. I think we are done, Pastor Carl. We're done. We're out of time. Well, thank you for joining us today for the Bible line. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ. 